Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I am Elizabeth, and this week, as is, seems to be now tradition, I'm going to be recapping my experience running the Boston Marathon, which did this past, uh, actually Monday, since it's held on Patriot State, the third Monday of April. Patriot State is a holiday in the state of Massachusetts and Maine, which, fun fact, Maine and Massachusetts used to be the same state, used to be both Massachusetts, and then because of things with, like, granting statehood to the south and blah, blah blah anyways Maine became its own state why do I know this because I'm from Maine and when you grow up in a state you learn a lot about your state's history which I think is important sometimes but we're not here to talk about the history of Maine's statehood we're here to talk about the Boston Marathon now this episode I'm a little close to the race in order to I think process a lot of the emotions that I have about it fully and so in order to keep this episode under five hours. Um, I'm really just going to be today walking through, I'm going to tell you about how, about the race, about the experience, about the weekend, about the course, <laughs> about, about what happened. Um, and I'm assuming, and I'm planning on at some point kind of doing, doing a, a deep dive, probably with a guest about my thoughts about the Boston Marathon and its place in the pantheon of our running community. Um, but that is going to be a separate conversation. So the Boston Marathon, fun fact, the Boston Marathon is a race where the majority of the participants are qualifiers. So about, I think about 80% of the field have to qualify to get in, which makes it a very different experience from other large races where there's a lottery and I'm not here to debate the inclusion or exclusion, um, exclusivity inclusivity of that policy but what I will say is that yes for a whole bunch of runners running a Boston qualifying time is a huge sometimes very long term goal and for me I ran my Boston qualifying time in late 2021 and because of the way that the qualifying window works the qualifying window closes around in mid-September and so if you haven't run a race by mid-September let's I'll put, I'll put it in actual years. So the qualifying window for the 2022 Boston Marathon closed in mid-September of 2021. And I ran my marathon a couple weeks after that. So this means that I had to wait like a full year, right? It's like, you know, birthdays in school, depending on where the cutoff date is. So I actually ran my qualifying time in 2021 that got me or allowed me to register for the 2023 marathon without any guaranteed entry. This is another little quirk of the Boston Marathon. Even if you do get your qualifying time in the window and then have the opportunity to register for the race, depending on how many people actually sign up with qualifying times, they may start cutting off the time below what the actual qualifying time cutoff was. So this didn't happen last year and didn't happen the year before. Basically, if you registered and and had your proof of time, if you ran a qualifying time, you got in. There was zero uh, buffer, as they call it. But in years past, there have been instances, especially in the past 10, 15 years, where you may have registered and then in order to actually have been accepted into the race, the cutoff for the buffer time was like two minutes or three minutes or four minutes under. So the uh, Boston qualifying time for uh, women under 35, 18 to 35, is 1834, is three hours and th- currently three hours and 30 minutes. So what does this mean? So this means that in this year and the past year, if you ran 330 or under and you registered, you got in. But in past years with a buffer, Let's say if the buffer was two minutes and 30 seconds, if you ran a, a two or sorry, a 329, even though it's technically a Boston qualifying time, you would still not have gotten into the race because so many people who were very fast registered, they essentially filled up the race and had to cut it off under at a time under the qualifying time. This tends to, let me say, 
um, piss some people off. Because look, I get it. If you qualify, it's kind of like a, if you qualify, you should be able to get in, right? And I don't think any other race in the world works like this. If you qualify for the Chicago Marathon and you register, you should, you're in. New York, New York City, if you qualify, New York, by the way, has qualifying standards too. So if you have not chosen, gotten your luck at the lottery and you happen to be a pretty fast runner, you should try to uh, get in via qualifying. Um, same thing, you know, if you can qualify and register, like you're in. But Boston uh, has this thing where that doesn't happen every year. You can still qualify. And if you are not enough under the qualifying time, you may still not get in, which again, not here to debate the inclusivity or exclusivity of the race on this episode, simply telling you how it works. So I ran my qualifying time in September, no, October of 2021. And again, hadn't <laughs> had to wait like 18 months to run this race. And um, when the registration window opened last year, I actually wasn't, it was one of those things where I wasn't gonna do it, um, even though running a qualifying time had been like kind of a, a low key, like, yeah, of course I'm going to try to run a BQ because that's what runners try to do. Right. Which again, that's a whole separate conversation, but I registered and figured maybe I won't get in who knows the buffer. You know, I only like a two minute, three minute under buffer and figured it's entirely possible that with the, you know, post COVID wave of people and it's entirely possible that I won't get in, but I did. And then I thought, well, you know, if I do get in and I know I was also running Chicago in the fall and running back to back marathons, one in October and one in April, like that's two marathons pretty close together. And personally, I've never been able to do two marathons that close together successfully. So, you know, so I had kind of gave myself all these outs. But after Chicago and my experience and kind of looking back about where I was in getting back on track with just like basic health stuff after working with the dietitian and finally kind of crawling out of this hole of being underfueled and having vitamin deficiencies as a result of really long-term carbohydrate restriction. Um, finally getting back after Chicago and Chicago, like my, I felt terrible in Chicago and I really wanted to be like, look, I, I Boston is in my backyard, right? I'm from New England. I live on Hills. How bad could it be? I want to go and at least have the experience. So uh, I did a 12, maybe 14 week build. I didn't really start building until after the holidays ended, which depending on the strength of your base is something you can or cannot do. Um, having, you know, run for years at this point and, um, you know, kind of maintained, I was, I think I was running like 30, 35 miles a week. Um, before starting the actual build and felt very comfortable. Talked to my coach about it. We both agreed like a shorter build was completely okay and all these things. And so I set off to do all the things that you do when you train for Boston, which is mostly run a lot of hills because the Boston Marathon course is notoriously hilly. It's notoriously down hilly. It has a lot of, uh, it's actually a net elevation loss course. And if you listen to the episode on the Boston Marathon course from last season with Mary Johnson, who's fabulous, um, we talk about the course and the undulations of the course and the history of the course and kind of the, how the course is set up. So the, the cool thing about Boston is that it is a net, it's a point to point net downhill course in that you get bust to the start line. You get bust 26 miles west to Hopkinton. And then they drop you off the bus and you basically have to run back. <laughs> and on the way, you lose about 1,200 feet of elevation. You gain about 800 feet. I'm going to talk about the hills because they feature heavily in, in how the race went for me. Um, in general, the course on paper is challenging, but not crazy. And I think anybody who is an ultra runner is listening to this going, oh my God, that's what I get in like the first 5k of my ultra. I get it. Look, but road marathons are not trail marathons. Okay. They're different beasts. And so if you, you know, losing about 1200 feet total, gaining about 800 feet total over 26 miles, it's not that crazy. Uh, it's really not, um, again, challenging, but not insurmountable. And so going in, living where I live, I actually live, my neighborhood is called something mountain. I live on a mountain in my neighborhood. It's very hilly to leave my neighborhood. I have to go down the mountain. 
And so I thought, I'll just run, I'll just run my hills. Uh, I will do something that I, I, for Chicago, I intentionally sought out flatter sections of my area because of course the Chicago Marathon's very flat. And I opposite for this time, Boston, I'm gonna do hills, uphill, downhill, all the hills, especially downhill. And uh, let me just say, I thought I'd over-prepared and I did not, but hey, this course specifically, for like I said, First off, the marathon owes you nothing. And I think sometimes we go into race days kind of think, not to say a little overconfident, but feeling like almost we deserve it, right? The marathon owes you nothing. You can do everything right in training and still have your race day be a disaster. Like sometimes it just doesn't go your way. Whether you are new or experienced or the greatest marathoner who's ever lived, Elliot Kipchoge, this this distance and especially this course can chew you up and spit you out. And so for anybody who is going to be running Boston in the future, I would say over, over, over prepare and stay humble. <laughs> yes. So um, uphills, downhills, lots of uphills, lots of downhills, raised pace, short hills, long hills, uh, steep hills, you know, gradual hills, all the hills, and was feeling relatively confident. Now, me personally, I have to say, and again, you can do everything right leading up to race day and still have your race day not go the way that you planned. I have some huge positives to take away from this race specific training cycle because one I did the whole thing for some reason in previous training cycles my sixth marathon and for all of the previous five marathons that I've run I've never actually been able to do a full uninterrupted marathon build the first marathon that I ran I did like I ran it six months after I started running like there was no marathon build (laughs) I'm not even quite sure how I pulled that one off, Um, but I don't think I really started quote unquote marathon training until like six weeks before that race. My second marathon, I was, and I've talked about this before on a couple other shows, had gone through like some big life changes. I'd gotten a new job. I was still in that place of running everything way too hard. So I was kind of like flirting with burnout, right? So that, and then, um, so that was not a full cycle because I like really didn't even train for it. My third marathon Um, Got interrupted because of COVID. Everything shut down with COVID. I was exceptionally well-trained. So I actually ran out and ran a virtual marathon by myself and ran a wonderful time. So looking back, I'm kind of a little bit ticked off that that (laughs) didn't happen in a real race. Um, But again, not a full build. Actually, I'd gotten through about 10 to 12 weeks, 10 10 weeks of training. um, And then COVID shut down. So I took like a couple weeks. So just kind of like kind of kept going. And then ran a a half marathon virtual PR and then the next weekend ran a marathon virtual PR. Like it's weird. It's just weird how that happened. So that wasn't even a full build. My fourth marathon um, was not a full build because I did get injured at the end of that training cycle. So that took me out for about two weeks. I had a peroneal tendonitis thing, which ended up resolving and I had a really good race. That's, That's actually the race that I qualified for Boston with. Um, my fifth marathon was Chicago and I felt kind of bad from the start, but thinking all this happens in context, right? Your training doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I think one of the most frustrating things that I work with runners about and the things that I face myself in training is that sometimes when you are working through issues, you have to trace way, 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 way back to figure out where the thing all started. And so there's a lot of stuff, which I have to say, personally, I am very upset with myself about because I feel like I have essentially stolen years of my prime and trying to just basically claw back to basic health and and fitness after making some really huge mistakes as a new runner, mostly chronic carbohydrate restriction and then like not running easy for anything for two years, that... I'm essentially still like, I'm still just trying to find my equilibrium. This has been a multi-year process. And I think that anybody who has dealt with health issues like this understands the frustration of feeling like it's just kind of endless and you are making progress, but it's not happening fast enough. And why can't it just be like it used to be? And oh my God, what has happened to my body? I'm there. I'm there with you, but we have to be steady 
and keep moving forward and trust the process. So like I said, huge takeaways and wins for this race are that I actually did an uninterrupted successful marathon training build. I ran two marathons really close together. Yes, an October and an April marathon are close together races in the context of marathoning. And I did lots of hills. I objectively gained fitness. Actually going into Boston, going into this race, I knew I was not in shape to PR and I knew I was unlikely, very unlikely going to be in shape to run another qualifying time on the course. But I actually thought I wasn't going to be that far off. So let me put things in context. I thought I was in shape to probably run around a 340 or a 345 marathon, which is about 10 to 15 minutes slower than my current marathon PR. And I ended up running a 359 in change. My seagull stay under four because that course, no matter how many downhills that I ran in training, I've never had a course destroy my quads like that. And I'll take you through it mile by mile because it's very unpleasant. But um, Kipchoge and I basically had the same problem. It started in the left leg, (laughs) upper left leg. So downhill running is very, very hard on your quadriceps, the muscles on the front of your thighs. And one of the things that your quads do when you run downhill is that they stabilize you and they are shock absorbers. And you are also running, uh, those are, what's happening is that your quads are eccentrically contracting, right? So it's um, lengthening under load, right? So your quadriceps are, when you hit the ground, your quads are lengthened, right? But they're still under load. Eccentric running, eccentric contractions are um, actually relatively energy efficient, but they can, they're very, they're very hard on your body. And so uh, one of the hallmarks of Boston and having trained people for Boston and having studied the course extensively and read about it, it's pretty well known. Don't trash your quads. Don't trash your quads. Don't go out too hard on the downhill. The first 16 miles is basically rolling downhill. And if you go out too fast in the first 16 miles, you will destroy your quads. And the the rest of the last 10 miles of the race is going to be just a pure suffer fest. And I really genuinely thought I had this handled. Like I said, I ran so many downhills and uphills in training. And yet by mile 14, I was experiencing kind of a left twingy quad and thought, rut row, this is going to be a real suffer fest through the end. And it was, it absolutely was. But this is again, the importance of having multiple race goals is that when I saw my A and B goals slipping away pretty dramatically, um, I was I had my C goal to finish on, and, and, and I did. And I finished, and I didn't drop out. I was in an incredible amount of discomfort. But like the marathon owes you nothing. You either finish or you don't. And I decided to continue and finish. And stairs were a real challenge for the next couple of days. So... Boston Marathon, huge race. If you've never run a huge race before, one of the things that you will and should marvel at, as I continually do, is the logistics, the the sheer like clockwork logistics of putting on a race like this never cease to amaze me. So Boston Marathon, like I said, it's a point to point course, as in they bus you out to the start line and then you have to run back to the finish. And unlike a race like Chicago, which it, although the start and the finish line are in slightly different places, they're in the same park. Like it is a place where, you know, you, the finish line, the start line are like maybe, a, I don't even know on the map, quarter mile away, 250 yards away. Like they're really close together. Um, so the logistics of running a race that is a, as a loop course, or basically a loop, as in you start and finish in the same place, is that you know, everybody start, shows up at the same place and you go and then you come back, which is still huge logistics for corralling and moving and, and managing thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, plus volunteers, everybody else. But with a point to point course, and this is uh, something Boston, New York, famously, and London, these courses where you have to move 30 or 40,000 people from point B to point A so they can run back to point B again is amazing. 
So race morning, I woke up. Okay, I'm gonna back up even further and say, one of my favorite things about running huge races like this is not obviously marveling at logistics. <laughs> it's being in a place where you feel such an incredible sense of oneness with every, everybody's there for the same reason. The people who even who, who live there, you know, it's like everybody's coming together for the same reason, the same purpose, the same celebration to walk down the street and to see a bunch of people like we're all in this together. And it's a very similar feeling to that you don't often feel in times and in places that are purely joy based. The only other time I've experienced that type of feeling is in the wake of big disasters. So after 9-11 or after the Boston bombings or just or even with COVID, this feeling of like the, you know, that the recognition of we're all in this together and we're all in the same boat and like I see you and you see me and like we're here for each other, except in a marathon on a marathon weekend, it's just pure joy and pure excitement. There's none of that like, oh, we're in this together and we're here together because something terrible happened and now we're going to support each other. It's like it's it's all of the excitement and none of none of the other negative emotions right so you go to a city like boston or uh chicago or new york you know you you go in the whole it feels like it feels like the whole city is there to support you and the people you see on the streets and all the events that are happening you feel so much like it's just just an incredible feeling of being part of something greater and I was very emotional the whole weekend and I'm not the kind of person who gets sentimental that easily and maybe it was because I was in the late luteal phase, right? So hormonally was kind of in a funky place that actually also probably didn't do me any favors in the race itself because I don't I don't tend to perform really well in my late luteal phase. But um it was very it was very emotional. It was very emotional for me. Uh and they're like I almost cried a couple times, including on the bus. I almost cried like three times on the bus heading out to Hopkinton on Monday morning. It's just, it's just amazing. And if you've never had the chance to spectate or be in um, a place like that for the weekend, it really is a unique feeling. It's such a cool experience. And to see people and meet people in person for the first time, we did a shakeout run on Sunday morning and you know, to have people from all walks of life, all parts of the world, all goals, all paces come and just be together because we're celebrating this one thing, which is us being able to run this race. That was it's such a special experience. So the logistics of a major race like this, you get up in the morning and it's all very like it's all very regimented. So you go to pick up your bib at the expo, which is always an absolute ish show. And I'm not an expo person. I like to get in and get out as fast as possible. I did not take like any pictures. I did not stand in any of the lines, but you could have. There was a lot to do there if you wanted to. I got my bib on Saturday. Sunday we did the shakeout run. Basically in between that, uh, all I did was kind of hang out and I did a little bit of work and ate a lot of simple carbohydrates and stayed really, really, really well hydrated. When you get your information with your bib and your wave assignments and your corrals and all of this, you get a lot of other information about when to show up for the bus and what time you you need to be in certain places. I was in the third wave, so the blue wave, which I got to joke. That means I got to sleep in a little bit, which is true. I didn't have to get up till 6.30 on Monday morning, which for a, a major race is actually pretty late because this race does start a little bit later. I didn't cross the start line until about 11 a.m. Uh, my wave meant that I was supposed to be in the uh, bus loading area and buses were leaving around 8.15 for my wave. So staying about a half a mile away, I walked over around eight o'clock and it is just, I mean, it's just a sea of people and lines of school buses, like dozens and dozens and dozens of school buses. And um, you go through security and uh, of course, security was very, very tight because it was the 10th anniversary of the Boston bombing. So I think, you know, even with these large races, there is a, a, a big security presence, right? That many people in a major area, unfortunately, 
in the world that we live in, you need to be very cautious about, you know, exposing that many people to potential threats and risks. Um, but uh, so I, I walked over to the bus pickup area and went through the first. I think that was actually really the only time I actually went through security. So they are very explicit in what you are and are not allowed to bring in onto the buses. And basically, once you get past that first line of security and then get on your bus and then get bussed out, you're kind of like through, you're kind of past security, right? So think of it like an airport. Like you've basically gone through security screening. And on the other side, even though you are, you know, on a bus and then you go 26 miles to the west and then get off the bus, like you're technically within the screened area, which that was really interesting. With your bib pickup and the, the gear check bag that they give you, the clear bag, the big bag full of other stuff, there was also a smaller, about a one gallon printed um, Ziploc bag and said, you know, this bag, this bag is what you can bring to the athlete's village. Um, and one of the tips that I had been given and, and when I woke up and I knew it was going to be kind of wet on Monday is that uh, when you get on the buses and they bus you out to the start line, um, and there's this athlete's village, there are porta potties, and there's a big tent. Is that it can, if it's raining, it can be very muddy. And so bring, you know, wear throwaway shoes and then bring your shoes that you're going to race in and put those on right before you start. So you're not like walking around in wet, muddy shoes, and then you have to go run that same race in wet, muddy shoes. So I did that. Um, what I had originally done was I had my my clear plastic bag. And I had in my clear plastic bag, I basically had like food. I had uh, pretzels. I had some nature. I had way too much food, but just in case, you know, maybe somebody else needed food too. I had uh, pretzels, bag of pretzels. I had nature's bakery fig bars. I had packets of liquid IV. I had some extra gels that I actually ended up bringing with me onto the course. Um, what else did I have? Oh, I had it. I had rain I, ponchos that I bought from Amazon, like two rain ponchos, an emergency blanket folded up like I had. It was my little stash of stuff. And then separately in a little uh, plastic carrier bag, I had put my race shoes and socks in that bag. And so when I went through this first wave of security, um, basically said like, you can't bring any bags except that clear plastic Ziploc bag that was provided for you. So I had to take my shoes out of the out of the carrier bag that I had them in, not the laces, throw them over my shoulder and carry on through security. Not a big deal. I just thought it was really interesting. Like they were pretty significant about that kind of like, nope, the only bag you're allowed to take through is the clear one that we provided for you. Now, on the course, I did see people wearing hydration packs, which are expressly forbidden, but I'll be honest with you, it would have been pretty easy to get one past security, uh, which is like not for me to say whether people should or should not have done that. I personally love racing with a hydration vest because I like to carry all my stuff with me, um, but it although I wasn't allowed to bring my bag with my shoes in it. Um, they didn't, there was no like metal detectors. They didn't pat you down. They didn't wand you. So I was wearing my race gear and over that I had a, a clear red plastic poncho. Um, but that was kind of it. So go through security. The buses, once you get past security, there's porta potties everywhere. Basically from, from the beginning of every day to the end of the day, there are, you are surrounded by porta potties, <laughs> which is like a runner's dream. Um, so I waited for the bus for about, I would say about half an hour. And again, talking about moving tens of thousands of people from point B to point A, very impressive. Uh, at that point, it was drizzling. It's probably about 8.30, 8.45 in the morning. It was overcast. It was kind of like a heavy mist. I had my poncho. It was a little bit breezy. Uh, it wasn't uncomfortable, but you know, you're standing around in the rain and you know I was talking to a couple other runners and and to my coach about this afterwards is that one of the biggest challenges of these major races is not only one that you have to get up so much earlier than before you actually have to cross the start line right so I woke up at 6 30 didn't start running until 11 right so how how do you effectively hydrate and fuel yourself during that time but then also reminding and remembering and reminding yourself that you're going to be moving during that time and this also was a huge issue with the uh, New York City Marathon. 
that, you know, you have to basically wake up and then get yourself to Staten Island. <laughs> Unless you're already staying on Staten Island, you're going to need to trek over. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of walking involved. I think I probably between wake, waking up before I even started running. So between walking to the buses, standing around waiting for the buses, which isn't really moving, but you are standing, you're on your feet. Then you were on the bus for about an hour. So I got on the bus around 8.50, standing in line, standing in line, standing in line, waiting for the buses kind of go through, they fill up and then they get released and there's more buses that come in and then you, you know, load people on, they fill up and then they get released to go. About an hour drive and probably would have taken a little bit less time because there definitely was marathon related traffic. It's, it probably would have been like a 30 minute, uh, you know, ride without any traffic, but it took about 60 minutes to get from Charles Street uh, in downtown Boston on the bus, driven all the way out to Athletes Village, about an hour, right? So be prepared, (laughs) bring snacks, bring fluids, and they drop you off at the Athletes Village. Uh, And then you go and walk up to the Athletes Village. Uh, It kind of, it looked like a school. I'm honestly not sure where I was and I haven't really looked at it. It felt like I was at a, at a school kind of, I didn't see any buildings, but you, you kind of walk up this little, uh, get off the bus, kind of walk up this little rise. And then there's kind of a couple areas you can go to, but it's all ringed with porta potties. There were fence, um, uh, tents set up like a large, you know, white, if you've been to a wedding, looks like a wedding tent, but you know, huge, um, it, it, kiosks for information and, and, a really a, an area where you could just, you know, put your trash or people walking around with bags to get gear donations, which I thought was really nice that they don't, you know, so people weren't just like leaving stuff on the ground. And I would say between waking up and actually starting running, I probably walked how long, how many miles, how many miles do I think that I walked about a quarter mile, no half mile. Three, three, maybe three miles total. Yeah, because it's by the time you get, so you walk up through the athlete's village and I hung out there, got in line for the porta potty first night. I know what my priorities. Uh, the, when I got off the bus, is about 8.50 in the morning. Um, it actually had started raining a little bit by then. So it kind of rained on and off um, throughout the rest of, of the day. At some points, like coming down hard and then some points being pretty clear. So I actually put on a second rain poncho and I tied up my emergency mylar blanket around my waist, kind of like a skirt, and got in line for the porta potty, used the porta potty with plenty of toilet paper, which is nice because sometimes with you know these large races, they run out of toilet paper pretty quickly. And then went under the tent and kind of hung out for a little bit and then changed my shoes and then realized that I had totally blown past the time that I was supposed to leave for my corral. And so I just like, hightailed it out of there. Um, and then it is about a 15 minute walk from the athlete's village to the area where the start line is and the corrals. And I was late for my corral, to be honest. They were calling the the or the wave. I, they were calling the wave behind me. And when people saw me, I'd be like, oh, you already went. I was like, I know, I know, I'm I'm late. I did not jog. I saw some people with my same color bibs jogging to the start line. Like, no, you cannot get me to jog <laughs> to my marathon because then I have to run a marathon. Especially because there was some up and downhill. Like I'm not running up any hills until I absolutely need to on this day. Thank you very much. Um, it's about, I think about a three quarter mile walk from the athletes village to the start line. And um, it was, uh, you go through kind of a residential area, unlike other large races that you may have run in that have waves and corrals, they don't they don't close the corral behind you. So let me put it this way. Sometimes when you run a big race, they basically load everybody into their corrals in the whole start line area. And once they close a corral, they kind of load the next group in behind them and they close that and they run, load the next group in behind them and they close that. So you're kind of stacked on top of each other. Like you can't go forward. You can't go back. You're taking up the whole street. This was not like that. Um, although there were areas where people were clearly being kind of like held in there were like corral markers, you could walk beside them and through them. Like they didn't close the whole street. So there, like I said, some races where you have to 
you know, put yourself in in your corral position. And if you miss that, you're basically screwed. Like you can't go up. You have missed your corral closure. You have to go then to the next corral that's open. This was not like that. I basically got waved all the way through to the start line. And it was actually a very surreal experience uh, because, you know, there are obviously people everywhere, thousands and thousands of people everywhere, runners, volunteers, law enforcement, spectators, um, you know, I didn't even have a chance to go in. There's like another porta potty area and there was a table with water like at near the start line area. Like I just walked right past that. But going up to the start line, um, you're just kind of in this wave of people that's moving with you. It was like just being in this sea of people all moving in the same direction. And there was like the race had started. There was no official like on your market set go. It was just like I realized as I was you kind of walk up this rise and then you get to kind of the top of this rise and then it starts to dip down on this road and you realize like, oh, this is the start line. Like the start line's literally right here and I've just been like walking towards it this whole time and I, and I just, you cross it and then you start running. So it was very interesting. <laughs> it was, it wasn't, it was like almost very anticlimactic. It was like, oh crap, like, oh, I, I'm starting. Here's the race, I have to start. There's a timing mat, I have to go and I have to start my watch. Um, the first mile of the race, not even the first mile, the very the very first bit of the race is very it's it's a downhill. Like it's downhill. If you watch it on TV, it doesn't quite do it justice. And you are firmly headed like, "Oh yeah, this is a downhill." It was it's very very easy with the Boston Marathon course, especially in the downhills, especially in the beginning of the race when you're feeling relatively f- fresh to not quite realize how fast you're going. And so one of my stated goals for this race was to make sure that I was really in control, especially for the first five miles or so, because I knew that if I went out too fast or too hard, that I was going to be in danger of not only mismanaging energy, which is the polite way of saying burning through way too much glycogen and creating way too much fatigue, (laughs) which is one of the biggest mistakes you can make in most races, but especially the marathon. I did not want to mismanage my energy, um, but I also wanted to make sure that I didn't trash my quads, right? So I genuinely, looking back, and this is one of the more frustrating things, again, the marathon owes you nothing. You can do everything right and it can still not be your day. Looking back at my data from this race, um, I don't see where I did anything wrong which is really frustrating because you you look back and sometimes when you have a race that goes sideways you can look back and say oh yeah no 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 i see i see where it all kind of started i see i can trace this back yeah no i guess in mile five i probably shouldn't have been running 15 seconds faster than goal pace oh yeah no i guess maybe that missing that gel at the for hour mark actually you know i i feel like my pacing and my effort was actually pretty correct. There was one thing that happened early on. Actually, I'm going to lie. There was well, not going to lie. There are two things, two things that happened early on in the race, the first five miles. I was prepared for the downhill. Psychologically, I was not prepared. And this is the thing about Boston is that it is, although it's a net downhill, it's a rolling downhill as in you're going to have some uphills. We hit an, an uphill, I think in the first mile, it's what it felt like. And I was not prepared for that. I was prepared. And this... I don't know. Here's the thing. I thought I'd prepared. I thought I'd overprepared. I'd studied that course and I was not ready for a hill in the first mile. I was basically prepared to drop for lose elevation for five miles, roughly speaking, and then have it kind of flatten out with some more rolling downhill. And then you start to climb uh, around mile 15, 16, and 17, the kind of hills, the Newton Hills end with Heartbreak Hill around mile 21. And then it is you know, rolling downhill or flat through the finish. So that's what I was ready for. I was psychologically prepared to drop, to run downhill for five miles. Uh, And then we hit a hill. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, wait, what is this? The other thing that happened is that when I, when I started the race around 11 a.m., like I said, it kind of rained on and off. It was very, very, very humid. It was about 98%, almost 100% humidity, which of course, not surprising when it's that misty and rainy and foggy. And it was a mid fifties, mid to high fifties at the point in time that we, that I started running around 11 AM, it was very humid and it felt a little warm and that, that worried me a little bit. And within, I'd say probably about by mile four, I'd started actually to get a side stitch, which is 
unusual. Um, they're not unusual for runners to get them, but I, I can't remember the last time I got a side stitch. Um, so that's not a great time to get one in a, in a marathon in the first five miles of a marathon. And so I did the holes on my right side of the whole kind of like moving my shoulder up and down, kind of doing like a chicken wing thing. And it kind of hurt. Like I did, I did the thing. I don't know if this is true or not. Like you kind of like jam your fingers into the side of your abdomen, do like a hard breathe out. That didn't really work. And so I just said to myself, like, look, you just got to deal with it. Like you just, it's maybe it'll go away. (laughs) It did. And then it came back, but that's for a different reason. Maybe it'll go away. So that kind of made me a little bit nervous. And so I probably expended a little bit more mental and emotional energy between the unexpected hill. Like, I don't know why that, that it threw me for a loop. It wasn't even a, it was like a little rise, but I wasn't expecting it. And then of course the side stitch. And so that, those two things was like, uh oh, <laughs> maybe I'm not feeling great. I felt pretty good. I didn't feel great. And so in a marathon, you know, having, having done enough marathons where I know it's such a long race, so much can change. Like you can never assume that how you're feeling now is how you're going to feel in one mile or five miles or 10 miles. And so I never try to like, you know, freak out about what's going to happen. Like you'd really have to just deal with what you get and just, if it's not going your way, just try to get through it. Odds are it will get better. And if it doesn't, guess what? You just kind of deal with it until you're done <laughs> and then you're done. So the, the side stitch and the, uh, and the hill. And, um, so, you know, one of those things where you're just like, I, I don't really have a choice. Like, what am I going to drop out at the fifth mile of the Boston marathon? Because I have a side stitch that's kind of in, wasn't even that bad. It was like, a, it was more sore than anything else. I think anybody who's had a side stitch, kind of, it's, it felt like a, it wasn't a stabbing. It wasn't a burning. It wasn't a ripping, right? It was kind of like a, ow, that's really sore in my side. And when I kind of lifted my arm up, it felt like it was like pulling on a sore muscle. It was very weird. And so, I mean, uh, the technical definition of a side stitch is a transient abdominal, what is it called? Exercise associated transient abdominal pain, ETAP. Uh, and we think it has to do with like diaphragmatic spasms, but yeah, that's not an episode about side stitches. Um, so the continued, right? The keys to the marathon are patience, 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 and fueling and hydrating. Initially, my hydration strategy, there are um, uh, water stops, water stations, water and Gatorade on the Boston Marathon course, basically every mile starting around mile two which is one of the most amazing things about these large races is that there is, oh, they don't allow hydration packs, but there is plenty of hydration available on the course. Now, like I said before, I was in my late luteal phase, which for me personally, I know I don't run really well. And I personally have trouble with thermoregulating as in like my body temperature runs a little bit higher. I don't sweat as easily. And so going into knowing the humidity was so high, even though it was, it was cooler, I was very concerned about getting enough hydration on the course uh, and getting enough electrolytes without hydration. So I chose high sodium goo. So the goo roctane salted lime flavor, which has 190 milligrams of sodium per gel, which is awesome. Uh, so that was my primary gel. I also carried pre-mixed goo roctane uh, like drink powder, uh, liquid mix in a flip belt bottle so kind of mixed to extra strength and then so it was not a gel but it's a very concentrated form of fuel so concentrated form of liquid fuel that also had high amount of sodium and then i was also planning on uh, grabbing some martin gels which are being handed out along the course at three different spots and then i also had salt stick with me for extra electrolytes and my plan for hydration was to grab a cup of water starting at mile two, every two miles, and then to skip one. So I would do water at three and four, skip five. Water at six and seven, skip eight. Um, I realized really quickly, and this is one of those things where you talk, you know, you can't substitute experience for experience. Like sometimes you you need to have the experience to be able to make these decisions in the race. And is that I realized really quickly that I was going to need to take water at basically every stop, which I did. And that actually worked out really well. 
Uh, I grabbed water. There are actually a couple stations where I grabbed more than one cup of water. I think there were a couple uh, aid stations where I grabbed two cups because the first cup that I grabbed seemed to be underfilled. So I was like, I need more than this. Um, Because the cool thing about water (laughs) is that if you you take a little bit too much, you can then skip the next aid station. And in a situation where marathons, humid marathons are very dehydrating, and I know personally that I sweat a lot, and it was cooler, and it then had started to rain, and I also knew that my sensation of thirst you, your sensation of thirst can diminish up to 40% in cooler conditions. So it's kind of like a double or a double whammy of like, you're getting dehydrated, but you're not going to feel it. And you're not thinking you're sweating because it's cooler out. So then you can end up really dehydrated. So I was like, don't end up dehydrated. Make sure you're replacing electrolytes. Take every fuel stop. I have my Koros watch set to notify me of a nutritional alert every 20 minutes. So every 20 minutes I fueled. I started with my liquid mix and then I alternated with my goo. Um, when I took Martin on the course, I opted for the Martin caffeinated because by the time that <laughs> those those uh, gels became available to me, I felt like I the first one, uh, Martin uh, gel was available on course around mile 11. It was, I think it was right before the Wellesley Scream Tunnel, which is one of the coolest experiences of my entire life. But I, Martin is very low sodium gel. So I knew that I needed to add sodium to that. So I took a caffeinated gel, uh, around mile 11, cause that was the plan. And then actually all the other, the Martins I ended up grabbing on the course, all were caffeinated because I just needed the boost at that point. Right. So I'm getting through, rolling through kind of be like, all right, this isn't ideal, but you're here. What are you going to do? Drop out? Hell no. Like you're going to go, <laughs> you're going to go to the finish. You're going to see, you're going to see what this is all about. You're not a newbie. You can do this. So I rolled on through rolling on through, you know, getting the first, ideally the first 10 miles of the marathon, you want to finish it feeling very comfortable. Um, I did, I was not feeling very comfortable, but by the time I'd hit the 10 mile mark, I definitely found a groove. And I found that basically if I kind of just let my body run what it wanted to run, I was running around 820, 825 pace on some of the downhills. I could have run faster. I was really, 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 honestly, really hold, trying to like hold it back. Like, no, don't go all out, right? It's not what we're here for. First part of the marathon is not for that. And then on the kind of flatter parts, I was running between 835 and like 845. And then anytime I hit an uphill, like I just, I just took it really easy. Like I backed way off. My pace dropped into the nines. Like it was like, that's the plan. That's, that's okay. It's not what I'm here for. Like, although I did have like some of these goals that I was going to hope to reach on this day, like the overarching goal of this race was not to try to run a specific time. So I knew for me personally, like, look, that my major goal was to get through the hills, um, comfortably, right. Without feeling like I was going to die. And so that's kind of where my pace was fluctuating back and forth. And I felt really comfortable, right? So relatively speaking, as comfortable as one can feel in a marathon where you're sweating everything out and, um, you have a side stitch. I have to say, I think, yeah, my favorite part of the entire course was the Wellesley scream tunnel. For some reason, I thought it was later in the course. I thought it was around 16. It's not, it's between, I think 11 miles, uh, miles 11 and 12. And you run by the Wellesley college campus and Wellesley is an all girls school. And there was something, <laughs> there was just something that was so I like, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not the kind of person to get really sentimental about this stuff, but seeing, seeing that many young women in like the beginning of their life, just freaking out and yelling and screaming and cheering for me and all the other people who are passing by. And I I think the Wellesley Scream Tunnel started when the Boston Marathon was an all male race. And then the women would come to like holler at the men. But I... I felt it as the most unbelievable outpouring of like support and solidarity. And it made me, it just made me feel like I was flying. It was just amazing. I wish that I could have run in that tunnel for the rest of the race, but unfortunately it had to end. It had to end. And, uh, and then 
you kind of, like I said, kind of keep, keep rolling, right? Take your fuel, keep hydrating. And it was right around mile 14 that I started to feel, it's actually interesting. I think back at now, think back about it now. And what I actually started to feel was my left hip flexor just started to get a little sensation. And I was like, oh, that's weird. That's never happened before. And then probably about a couple miles later, then I was like, oh, I'm starting to feel something on my left quad. Again, like a sensation. And around, I was about around mile 14. And at that point I was thinking, wait, am I, did I, (laughs) did I trash my quads? Like, is this, how much damage control can I do here? Because this is not how I want to be feeling with um, almost half the race left to go. I'd hit the halfway split. I forget what my halfway split was, but I was actually decently on track. I think, I don't remember what my halfway split was, but um, it was, I was happy with it. I was like, all right, this is pretty good. You know, if you just, you're going to probably lose some time in the Newton Hills, but hopefully my goal was to get through the hills really conservatively and then be able to close strong. And by the time my quad started getting twingy, I realized that it was probably, I was going to need to probably back way off on the hills. And then my kind of strategy was like, all right, clearly the quads are not feeling great. I was starting to get, I was really worried they would start to cramp up, but that didn't happen. They just got really sore. If you've ever just continuously run downhill for 14 miles, um, ow, just like, yeah, they were kind of, kind of uh, tender with every step, but you have to keep going. Right. So you think, you know, kind of let gravity do some work. I, I, I backed off a little bit and my goal was to just be really conservative through the Hills so that I could just suck it up and suffer through the pain of every footstep and hopefully close fast. That did not happen. Uh, it didn't happen because (laughs) one of the things that happens when you, Um, when you cause significant fatigue to a muscle fiber is that, so, okay. So let me back up and say the way that your muscles work is that each individual muscle fiber is either on or it's off. And you can think of the way that your body, um, creates force by like how many muscle fibers it recruits to like do a thing. So, um, but when the muscle fiber is fatigued and kind of stops working, it stops being able to be used. It kind of burns out temporarily. This is a vast oversimplification. Please don't come at me, exercise physiologists about this. But so that muscle fiber, once it's kind of like used up, it kind of needs, it can't be used anymore. And what essentially happens is, and then it's kind of your, so your, your body then starts to recruit other muscle fibers that like aren't technically supposed, it's not really their job, but like they get kind of roped into it anyways. But long story short, if you if you do enough kind of acute f- damage, you know, fatigue to your muscle fibers, you lose the ability to recruit large groups of muscle fibers and essentially lose your ability to generate enough power to move forward and to move forward comfortably. Um, and so that's kind of where I ended up is that by the time I hit the uh, hills, the Newton Hills, um, around 16 through 21, I knew I was like, all right, you got five miles. I was I was fairly uncomfortable by the time we hit mile 16 with my quads. And, but I genuinely thought, look, if you just back off on the hills and you'll just have to suffer and be in pain for the last five miles from 21 to 26. So I backed off. I have to say the fur of the hills, I know people kind of talk about the Newton Hills. They're not big hills. The first hill does suck. The first of the Newton Hills actually is kind of a crappy hill. Like that was like, oh my God, please don't let them, please don't let them all be like this. And it wasn't. Um, the first hill was the worst. Um, but as I was progressively running through these hills, I was just kind of like, you know, I, I, my pace on the hill slow way down, right? So on the uphills previously, I was kind of drifting in the nines. By the time I hit that first big hill, um, I think I backed off. I was like, look, just don't walk up this hill. That was my only goal. So not walk up the hills. I actually didn't walk up any of the hills. I didn't start walking until like the flat part in the last like two, three miles of the race. Um, 
I was like, don't walk up the hills, just go as slow as you need to, just keep moving forward, right? So my pace slowed down to the 10s and then it slowed down to the 11s. I was like, that's fine. That's fine, Elizabeth. That's fine. Go as slow as you need to on the uphill. We just need, you know, then let gravity assist you on the downhill. And then we're going to try to save as much as we can for that last five miles, right? So I was literally counting down the miles. I was counting down the miles in two sections. I thought when I entered the, you know, past 16 and I said, okay, five miles to go. That's it five miles until you get through the hard section and then you can just go like not coast but like just run downhill to the finish so I was counting down mile five and then mile four and then mile three and actually unfortunately what I noticed is like I said talk about muscle fiber recruitment is that mechanically like biomechanically um, I was not moving very fluidly I was not moving very comfortably because when you when you trash certain muscle groups, um, you essentially are forcing your body to to move in, in weird ways. And so my stride had shortened up a lot. I was not getting a lot of, uh, I was not getting a lot of airtime, basically. So it was very shuffly, which is fine, right? Moving forward, forward as a pace. But none of these things are optimal for how you want to be feeling when you are running a marathon. So my stride had shortened up a lot. I was very shuffly. I think I had kind of an unfortunate bit of like a, a hinging at the hip at that point, which was very uncomfortable. Keep going, keep going, just keep going, just keep going. The heartbreak hill, the last hill of the Newton Hills is actually not that big of a deal as a hill, but Uh, it's just unpleasant to have to run up when your quads are dead. It's really more of like a long, I mean, it's, it's a gentle hill. By the time I got to the heart, people said this to me before. They're like, I didn't even realize I was on heartbreak hill until I saw the sign. And I'll be honest with you. That was my experience. I got to the top of this hill and I saw the sign. You've just reached the top of heartbreak hill. I was like, wait, that was heartbreak hill. I thought it was a little bit farther on. So that was a welcome surprise. Um, and so when you hear this, Heartbreak Hill is actually not that big of a hill. You may not even realize when you're climbing it, but it's where it is. And if you've poorly managed yourself up until that point, it'll depend on how it feels for you. So I am just this point struggle busing through it. I've lost significant time, right? <laughs> now, now I'm just genuinely concerned at this point about my ability to move forward because once I come off the hills, and the, the last five miles of the race are pitched downward, right? So you have some down and some flat. Um, my hope, what I'd hoped to have had happened was that I was going to be able to use gravity to my advantage. And despite the extreme discomfort in my quads, I would still be able to somehow pick up the pace and get some pace back for the final five miles and hopefully close in a, in a, strong fashion because I was well hydrated. I did not hit the wall. Like my side stitch at that point had disappeared. Like other than the quads, actually everything else was feeling really good, which is a very frustrating place to be in. Um, and I think if I like hit the wall or something or become dehydrated like that, or had, I had no GI distress, like all these things that can happen in a marathon didn't. But there was this one thing that did happen that was like, well, not, none of this stuff matters because you can't really even move forward. Um, I couldn't generate power, right? So I was on, I was trying to take advantage of these downhills and it was un- un- incredibly uncomfortable. I feel like somebody was stabbing my thighs with knives with every single step. And I was barely getting, like I said, any flight. Um, I was, my, my stride was like a shuffle on the downhill. And when I tried to pick up the pace on the downhill, I realized that I really couldn't. I couldn't run faster, even with no matter like I to suck up the discomfort. I just couldn't generate that much power. And I still had five miles to go. Now, as a runner, as a distance runner, there are certain situations that you find yourself in and you think it's only this. It's only five miles like you can run five miles. And I that's what I said to myself. I'm like, let's but this is only five miles. So you can run five miles. Um, but can you? At that point, I had two goals, finish and don't walk because I knew as soon as I started walking, um, I, it was going to be unlikely that I was going to be able to continue to run again. I did walk. I did walk a couple points. I walked twice, I think. And then I realized that walking hurt too. So I may as well just run instead. 
the last five miles of that race, if you put yourself in a position to feel really good and to have quads that were not being stabbed by knives with every step, I can see how that, that race is set up to allow you to close strong. And if I ever run that race again, that will be my goal. If you put yourself in a good position, I believe it, it's entirely possible to have the last five miles of that race be the fastest miles that you run all day, which sucks because you're, I'm, I'm on this course and it's downhill or flat and the crowd support is picking up even more. And that's where all the people are, right? That's where all the people are. And then they just come out and watch you just die. <laughs> um, is that it is set up to be a, a fast finish if if you've been able to manage things up until that point. So I'm just honestly trying to get through the last five miles. Um, I am, it, it's, it's one of those like those time dilation things where like I know that I'm in between mile markers and I just like, where is that next mile marker? Where is that next mile marker? Where is that next mile marker? Oh, thank God it's 22. Okay, just get to 23, get to 23, just get to 23, just get to 23. Um, it was, it was a real struggle. I, I mean, it's one of those things where like you mechanically, like I just felt, I felt so like hunched over and in pain. Like I was getting no hip extension. I don't remember when I first walked, it was maybe it was around mile 23. I went, it was on a flat part and I, I went to the side of the road and I started walking and I was like, I, the walking hurt too. And I, at some point I was like, should I just walk to the finish? Like, <laughs> should I just walk to the finish? Um, and then I, after, I think it was probably about, it feels like forever. It was probably 30 seconds. I started running again, which again, hurt. You're like, all right, pick your poison. Um, Chris McClung of Rogue Running, he said something to me on a, not something to me, he said something on a podcast that I listened to this years ago that stuck with me. It's that um, it's going to hurt no matter what. So you may as well just keep moving forward as fast as you can. And that's really the philosophy that I embodied. And I kept hydrating and I kept fueling, right? (laughs) All the way to the finish. Um, I took another walk break, I think around mile 24. It's one of those things you're like, how is this race not done yet? Oh my God. Um, And I didn't walk at all. I hit mile 25 and I was like, just, you can, you can run the rest of this. You can run to the finish. So I ran, I ran the final mile. And when you go right and then you go left, it is, I mean, there's people, there's people just screaming their heads off. And I was in so much pain and Finishing a marathon is always a major achievement. And I think the thing that sometimes that we, we see other people sharing the highlights and that's what I think what sticks in our mind, right? Because there are a whole bunch of people I know who had amazing race days and there are a whole bunch of people I know who had a real struggle fest, including, like I said, Elliot Kipchoge, who finished sixth. He faded. He missed a bottle, right? So, hey, I, I feel better than Kipchoge in my Boston Marathon. He had, he, it sounds like he had quad issues and he missed a bottle. So he missed a fueling stop. And he ran a 209 marathon, which I think for everybody else, me, I'm like, oh my God, it's blazing fast. For him, that's slow. That is, that is not the position that you want to be in, but that the marathon owes you nothing. And this course is really hard. And I was actually feeling, first of all, incredibly accomplished, Uh, I even forgot about the down, it started, it downpoured at a couple points during the course, which I actually really enjoyed, um, because it cooled me off a little bit, but you get through the finishing shoot. Uh, I actually was able to move forward. I was walking. There were a couple people in wheelchairs. There were a couple people, you know, so it's like you finish and you're like, ah, I can walk. Um, at least this isn't, isn't that bad. And it rap, I rapidly just kind of started to like, like my muscles just started to like seize up. Like I just needed to keep moving forward, grab a, grab a, uh, emergency blanket, grab a banana, grab a bottle of water, give me my metal, just like keep moving forward. 
the thing about when you are running and this happens, you know, your body, when you run, sheds heat, right? So you have your blood vessels dilate near the surface of your skin. Your body basically has the air conditioning turned on. And when you stop running, the air conditioning doesn't get turned off right away. So what happens is that if you don't warm up immediately or like put yourself in an environment, warm environment, they had warming buses. Um, they had, you know, areas where you could get warm is that I basically started like, just like losing body heat really quickly. So I started like, I was shivering. Um, walking was a challenge, right? Moving forward. But I did it. I did it. And I came in under my seagull, which is standard four hours. And I think more than anything else, I think it's really important that when we when we think about what we do and why we do it. I was telling myself on the course, I was telling myself with every step of pain, I was reminding myself you know, six years ago, I was an alcoholic drinking myself to death and I hadn't exercised in years. And on that day, I was running the Boston Marathon as a qualified runner. And it's sometimes these moments of, <laughs> I want to say of, of suffering, but like that I, I get to be here. I get to be here. And in an alternative universe, I wouldn't be here because I wouldn't be here at all. So why we do these things, I think it's really important to put it into perspective sometimes because it's really easy to get really caught up in a single race or a single performance and what it all means and how, what it is about you as your worth as a person and blah, blah, and all this stuff. And like, look, was that the race day that I wanted? No, but in the grand scheme of things, I'll take it because it means I'm here. It means I'm alive. It means that I get to do these amazing things that test the limits of my body and my mind. And at the end of the day, why we do this is to do those things. That's it. The times are a bonus. The results are a bonus. And yeah, like I said, I wish that I had felt better. <laughs> I'm not saying that I wanted to feel that way. But I'm grateful. I'm grateful. And after I finished, I thought to myself, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> not, I mean, not marathon. I'm not going to run another marathon this year. That's for sure. Two in, in uh, such a short period of time is definitely enough for me for now. I need to work on some other stuff. That's for sure. But uh, when I first, when I finished, I was like, I'm never doing that course again. That course is insane. I do not want revenge. I don't care. That's good. I'm done. And in classic runner fashion, a couple days removed, I'm thinking, man, I'm probably going to have to go get revenge on that course someday. Someday. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.